Book One, Chapter Three, Part One of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When Annixter arrived at the Los Muertos ranch house that same evening, he found a little group already assembled in the dining room. Magnus Derrick, wearing the frock coat of broadcloth that he had put on for the occasion, stood with his back to the fireplace. Harran sat close at hand, one leg thrown over the arm of his chair. Presley lounged on the sofa in corduroys and high-laced boots, smoking cigarettes. Broderson leaned on his folded arms at one corner of the dining-table, and Genslinger, editor and proprietor of the principal newspaper of the county, the Bonneville Mercury, stood with his hat and driving-gloves under his arm, opposite Derrick, a half-emptied glass of whiskey and water in his hand. As Annixter entered, he heard Genslinger observe, "'I'll have a leader in the Mercury tomorrow that will interest you people. There's some talk of your ranch lands being graded in value this winter. I suppose you will all buy.' In an instant, the editor's words had riveted upon him the attention of every man in the room. Annixter broke the moment's silence that followed with the remark, "'Well, it's about time they graded these lands of theirs.' The question in issue in Genslinger's remark was of the most vital interest to the ranchers around Bonneville and Guadalajara. Neither Magnus Derrick, Broderson, Annixter, nor Osterman actually owned all the ranches which they worked. As yet, the vast majority of these wheat lands were the property of the P and S.W. The explanation of this condition of affairs went back to the early history of the Pacific and Southwestern, when, as a bonus for the construction of the road, the national government had granted to the company the odd-numbered sections of land on either side of the proposed line of route for a distance of twenty miles. Indisputably, these sections belonged to the P&SW. The even-numbered sections, being government property, could be and had been taken up by the ranchers, but the railroad sections, or as they were called the alternate sections, would have to be purchased direct from the railroad itself. But this had not prevented the farmers from coming in upon that part of the San Joaquin. Long before this, the railroad had thrown open these lands, and by means of circulars distributed broadcast throughout the state, had expressly invited settlement thereon. At that time, patents had not been issued to the railroad for their odd-numbered sections, but as soon as the land was patented, the railroad would grade it in value and offer it for sale, the first occupants having the first chance of purchase. The price of these lands was to be fixed by the price the government put upon its own adjoining lands, about two dollars and a half per acre. With cultivation and improvement, the ranches must inevitably appreciate in value. There was every chance to make fortunes. When the railroad lands about Bonneville had been thrown open, there had been almost a rush in the matter of settlement, and Broderson, Annixter, Derrick, and Osterman, being foremost with their claims, had secured the pick of the country. But the land once settled upon, the P and SW seemed to be in no hurry as to fixing exactly the value of its sections included in the various ranches and offering them for sale. The matter dragged along from year to year, was forgotten for months together, being only brought to mind on such occasions as this, when the rumor spread that the general office was about to take definite action in the affair. "'As soon as the railroad wants to talk business with me,' observed Annixter, 
about selling me their interest in Keen Sabi, I'm ready. The land has more than quadrupled in value. I'll bet I could sell it tomorrow for fifteen dollars an acre. And if I buy of the railroad for two and a half an acre, there's boodle in the game. For two and a half, exclaimed Genslinger. You don't suppose the railroad will let you get their land for any such figure as that, do you? Where did you get that idea? From the circulars and pamphlets, answered Harran, that the railroad issued to us when they opened these lands. They are pledged to that. Even the PNSW couldn't break such a pledge as that. You are new in the country, Mr. Genslinger. You don't remember the conditions upon which we took up this land. And our improvements, exclaimed Annixter. Why, Magnus and I have uh, put about $5,000 between us into that irrigating ditch already. I guess we're not improving the land just to make it valuable for the railroad people. No matter how much we improve the land or how much it increases in value, they have got to stick to their agreement on the basis of two fifty per acre. Here's one case where the P&SW don't get everything in sight. Genslinger frowned, perplexed. I am new in the country, as Harron says, he answered, but it seems to me there is no fairness in that proposition. The presence of the railroad has helped increase the value of your ranches quite as much as your improvements. Why should you get all the benefit of the rise in value and the railroad nothing? The fair way would be to share it between you. Yeah, I don't care anything about that, declared Annixter. They agreed to charge but two fifty, and they got to stick to it. Well, murmured Genslinger, from what I know of the affair, I don't believe the P&SW intends to sell for two fifty an acre at all. The managers of the road want the best price they can get for everything in these hard times. Times aren't ever very hard for the railroad, hazards old Broderson. Broderson was the oldest man in the room. He was about sixty-five years of age, venerable with a white beard, his figure bent earthwards with hard work. He was a narrow-minded man, painfully conscientious in his statements, lest he should be unjust to somebody, a slow thinker, unable to let a subject drop when once he had started upon it. He had no sooner uttered his remark about hard times than he was moved to qualify it. Hard times, he repeated, a troubled, perplexed note in his voice. Well, yes, yes, I, I suppose the road does have hard times, maybe. Everybody does, of course. I, I, I don't mean that exactly. I, I believe in being just and fair to everybody. I mean that we've got to use their lines and pay their charges good years and bad years, P&SW being the only road in the state. <laughs> that is, well, well, when I say the only road, uh, no, I, I, I won't say the only road. Of course, there are other roads. There's the DP&M and the, and the San Francisco and North Pacific that runs up to Ukiah. I got a brother-in-law in Ukiah. <laughs> There's not much of a wheat country around Ukiah, though they do grow some wheat there, come to think of it, but I guess it's too far north. Well, of course, there isn't much. Uh, perhaps uh, 60,000 acres in the whole county, if you include barley and oats. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's near 40,000. I don't remember very well. Uh, that's a good many years ago. 
I, but Annixter, at the end of all patience, turned to Genslinger, cutting short the old man. All right, of course the railroad will sell at two fifty, he cried. We've got the contracts. Look to them then, Mr. Annixter, retorted Genslinger significantly. Look to them. Be sure that you are protected. Soon after this, Genslinger took himself away, and Derrick's Chinaman came in to set the table. What, what, what do you suppose he meant? asked Broderson when Genslinger was gone. About his land business, said Annixter. Oh, I don't know, some tomfool idea. Haven't we got their terms printed in black and white in their circulars? There's their pledge. Oh, well, as to pledges, murmured Broderson, the railroad is not always too much hindered by those. Where's Osterman? demanded Annixter, abruptly changing the subject as if it were not worth discussion. Isn't that goat Osterman coming down here tonight? You telephoned him, didn't you, Presley? inquired Magnus. Presley had taken Princess Natalie upon his knee, stroking her long, sleek hair, and the cat, stupefied with beatitude, had closed her eyes to two fine lines, clawing softly at the corduroy of Presley's trousers with alternate paws. "'Yes, sir,' returned Presley. "'He said he would be here.' And, as he spoke, young Osterman arrived. He was a young fellow, but singularly inclined to baldness. His ears, very red and large, stuck out at right angles from either side of his head, and his mouth, too, was large, a great horizontal slit beneath his nose. His cheeks were of a brownish red, the cheekbones a little salient. His face was that of a comic actor, a singer of songs, a man never at a loss for an answer, continually striving to make a laugh. But he took no great interest in ranching, and left the management of his land to his superintendents and foremen he himself living in Bonneville. He was a poser, a wearer of clothes, forever acting a part, striving to create an impression, to draw attention to himself. He was not without a certain energy, but he devoted it to small ends, to perfecting himself in little accomplishments, continually running after some new thing, incapable of persisting long in any one course. At one moment his mania would be fencing, the next sleight-of-hand tricks, the next archery. For upwards of one month he had devoted himself to learning how to play two banjos simultaneously, then abandoning this had developed a sudden passion for stamped leather work, and had made a quantity of purses, tennis belts, and hat-bands, which he presented to young ladies of his acquaintance. It was his policy never to make an enemy. He was liked far better than he was respected. People spoke of him as uh, that goat Osterman or that fool Osterman kid, and invited him to dinner. He was of the sort who somehow cannot be ignored, if only because of his clamor he made himself important. If he had one abiding trait, it was his desire of astonishing people, and in some way, best known to himself, managed to cause the circulation of the most extraordinary stories wherein he himself was the chief actor. He was glib, voluble, dexterous, ubiquitous, a teller of funny stories, a cracker of jokes. Naturally enough, he was heavily in debt, but carried the burden of it with perfect nonchalance. The year before, S. Behrman had held mortgages for fully a third of his crop, and had squeezed him viciously for interest. 
but for all that osterman and s behrman were continually seen arm in arm on the main street of bonneville osterman was accustomed to slap s behrman on his fat back declaring you're a good fellow jelly belly after all hmm? as osterman entered from the porch after hanging his cavalry poncho and dripping hat on the rack outside mrs derrick appeared in the door that opened from the dining-room into the glass-roofed hallway just beyond osterman saluted her with effusive cordiality and with ingratiating blandness i'm not going to stay she explained smiling pleasantly at the group of men her pretty wide-open brown eyes with their look of inquiry and innocence glancing from face to face i only came to see if you wanted anything and and to say how do you do she was talking to old broderson making inquiries as to his wife who had been sick the last week and osterman turned to the company shaking hands all around keeping up an incessant stream of conversation hello boys and girls hello governor sort of a gathering of the clans tonight. well if here isn't that man annixter hello buck what do you know <laughs> kind of dusty out tonight at once annixter began to get red in the face retiring towards a corner of the room standing in an awkward position by the case of stuffed birds shambling and confused while mrs derrick was present standing rigidly on both feet his elbows close to his sides but he was angry with osterman muttering imprecations to himself horribly vexed that the young fellow should call him buck before magnus's wife this goat osterman hadn't he any sense that fool couldn't he ever learn how to behave before a female calling him buck like that while mrs derrick was there why a stable boy would know better a hired man would have better manners all through the dinner that followed annixter was out of sorts sulking in his place refusing to eat by way of vindicating his self-respect resolving to bring osterman up with a sharp turn if he called him buck again the chinaman had made a certain kind of plum pudding for dessert and annixter who remembered other dinners at the derricks had been saving himself for this and had meditated upon it all through the meal no doubt it would restore all his good humor and he believed his stomach was so far recovered as to be able to stand it but unfortunately the pudding was served with a sauce that he abhorred a thick gruel-like colorless mixture made from plain water and sugar before he could interfere the chinaman had poured a quantity of it upon his plate bah exclaimed annixter it makes me sick such such sloop take it away i'll have mine straight if you don't mind that's good for your stomach buck observed young osterman makes it go down kind of sort of slick don't you see sloop eh <laughs> that's a good name look here don't you call me buck you don't seem to have any sense and besides it isn't good for my stomach i know better what do you know about my stomach anyway just looking at sloop like that makes me sick a little while after this the chinaman cleared away the dessert and brought in coffee and cigars the whiskey bottle and the siphon of soda water reappeared the men eased themselves in their places pushing back from the table lighting their cigars talking of the beginning of the rains and the prospect of a rise in wheat broderson began an elaborate mental calculation trying to settle in his mind the exact date of his visit to ukiah and osterman did sleight-of-hand tricks with bread pills 
but Princess Natalie, the cat, was uneasy. Annixter was occupying her own particular chair, in which she slept every night. She could not go to sleep, but spied on him continually, watching his every movement with her lambent yellow eyes, clear as amber. Then at length Magnus, who was at the head of the table, moved in his place, assuming a certain magisterial attitude. "'Well, gentlemen,' he observed, I have lost my case against the railroad, the grain rate case. Ulstein decided against me, and now I hear rumors to the effect that rates for the hauling of grain are to be advanced. When Magnus had finished, there was a moment's silence, each member of the group maintaining his attitude of attention and interest. It was Harron who spoke first. S. Behrman manipulated the whole affair. There's a big deal of some kind in the air, and if there is, we all know who is back of it. S. Behrman, of course. But who's back of him? It's Shelgrim. End of Book One, Chapter Three, Part One.